This is Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Whether this is the first time you're listening to our show or you've come back for yet another episode, I'm so glad you're here. I would love to hear from you about how these shows are impacting you. Please head to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, and write a review, and let me know how we're doing. In today's episode, I was so pleased to be joined by my new friend and fellow social worker, Rachel Carnahan. She has worked for nearly a decade as a social worker on the pediatric palliative care team at Dell Medical Center here in Austin, Texas. She opens up about what bearing witness and holding space for families as they navigate the most excruciating moments of their lives has taught her about her work, about her life, about what it means to be a parent, and what it means to carry on. And I think in a lot of ways, when a child does survive, then families, I don't know, from themselves, from the medical, somewhere, have the message of, you are so lucky your child is here. You're not allowed to be sad about anything else that happens now. Mm. Like, aren't you, what you wished for came true. Like, you wished and wished and wished that this child would be here, and now they are. So be happy. Suck it up. Exactly. And I think it... Wow. Yeah. It's such a disservice. Like, there are so many points of grief within the life of a medically fragile child. Every hospitalization, every milestone they're missing, every time you see another kid that same age doing something that, you know, your kid may never do, like, there is grief in that. And I think it is super unfair to not allow families to feel that. In addition to her work, Rachel volunteers at the Austin Center for Grief and Loss, facilitating a parents group. She's been doing that nearly as long as she's been serving as a social worker in her day job. I recently started volunteering there myself and had the opportunity to meet Rachel and was not surprised to learn that she is a social worker and that we have a shared interest and curiosity about grief and what it means to hold space and bear witness for others in their journey. I asked Rachel to share with me what was her earliest memory of grief and what did that memory teach her? Uh, Rachel Carnahan. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for joining me on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I am so happy to have you here with me today. Yes, I'm very excited to be here. What do you think that experience taught you about what it means to grieve? Um, I definitely remember as a young child, maybe like five or six, kind of walking into the kitchen and seeing my parents really tearful at the kitchen table. Um, And I guess thinking about it now, I'm not even certain that they were, like that someone had died. I'm not even certain that they were grieving, but... um, I guess up until this point, I assumed that's what it was. I don't remember there ever being a conversation like, oh, don't worry, we're crying because so-and-so has died. But it was more like, we're fine, everything's fine, everything's fine. And um, my parents are both not big criers. Like my mom exclusively cried in church, and that was like her only (laughs) That was her safe space. Yes, that was the only time I really ever saw her cry. Um, And so I think to kind of walk into this scene seeing um, both of my parents tearful. It was it was definitely an unusual um, experience in my house. And I think, like, overall, grief wasn't 
spoken about a whole, whole lot in when I was growing up. And we also didn't experience a whole lot of grief. In your personal life. And loss in my personal life when yeah. I was growing up. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I'm absolutely fascinated about um, is the work then that you got into yeah. because <laughs> the line of work that you are in often is a result of people's sort of personal experiences. Yeah. For example, the work that I have done as a social worker and therapist and now doing this work with Reimagining Grief and and this podcast comes out of certainly my some of my early personal experiences with trauma and mm-hmm. loss, and that shaped my trajectory. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about your training and your title and what you do for a living? Yeah. Yeah, it is a little odd that I kind of went forward in, in this particular line of work um, because I, I don't have a big um, history with personal grief and loss. Um, so I am the social worker at Dell Children's Medical Center, the pediatric palliative care team there. We work with kids with um, complex medical conditions and medical fragility who um, their conditions are often life-limiting or life-threatening. And so my work looks like a lot of supporting parents kind of in their um, early anticipatory grief or the grief around having a medically fragile child. Um, and we work with kids through the end of their life. And so then my work extends with those families um, kind of into the bereavement period. So when I went to school to be a social worker, I knew I wanted to be a social worker from like, I don't know, when I was like 10. Um, I think we social workers were like born <laughs> social workers. I yeah. agree. Um, and so when I went to school, I was I thought that I wanted to work in a hospital, but like with kids with cancer. Um, and one of my mentors um, suggested that I think about palliative care because it kind of blends these passions that I had in grad school of grief and loss and kind of exploring that and the long-term relationship building that you get in working with an oncology population. Um, and so I did kind of my final training of my social work um, education in Sydney, Australia in a palliative care team there um, and really learned how to do palliative care. And when I came back um, home to Texas, uh, a couple of years after I came back, there was a job opening on the the team at Dell, and I've been there for seven and a half years. Wow. Ever since. Yeah. That has me wanting to ask you to let us in a little bit about how you define palliative care, what you think the misconceptions are um, out there about palliative care, and and you reminding me that you studied in Australia, where I also had a chance to study, makes me wonder, too, have you seen a difference in the way palliative care is defined there versus here? I mean, I, I think it's an international struggle, the, the misconceptions with palliative care. So um, I think the most common misconception is that palliative care is hospice and is for people in the final stages of their life. Um, and in some cases, that can be true. Uh, we like to think of hospice as the purest form of palliative care um, because it shares some of the same goals. So the goal of palliative care is really to think about quality of life, to ease suffering in all of its forms. And, and that is also the true goal of hospice. There's just a time frame difference. So palliative care is available to people throughout the entire trajectory of their illness, from diagnosis, through treatment, um, to potential stability or even sometimes cure, um, palliative care is useful and right in all of those situations. Um, Many of the kids that we work with towards the end of their life do choose to sign up for hospice services. 
um, but some don't. And some of the kids we work with will never reach a place where they're eligible for hospice. We'll move into adulthood with chronic illness and medical complexity and will not require hospice services. Um, so palliative care, you know, looks at a lot of the same things hospice does. We look at physical pain and suffering and symptom management. We look at kind of the psychosocial and spiritual aspects of pain and suffering. Um, we're an interdisciplinary team, and so we have team members who are really experts in all of those um, kind of different realms. Um, so are you talking like chaplains, mm-hmm. doctors, nurses? Absolutely. Yep, yeah. all of the people you yeah. just said. Yeah. yeah. And and um, the, a palliative care team works in conjunction with a person's regular medical team. So palliative care doesn't take over once they get involved. Right. It's a really... Extension really of their care. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of um, our team doesn't um, offer home palliative care services, um, okay. but a lot of palliative care programs do. So that, especially for the adult population, um, so that people don't need to be inside a hospital or at a doctor's office to be receiving palliative care gotcha. services. Do you see any difference in the practice or the definitions or the misconceptions mm-hmm. between what you? observed in your time in Australia versus your time here in the States? I think the team that I worked with in Australia was a very well-established palliative care team that had a um, pediatric hospice facility as part of it, like Mm. a a respite facility and a hospice facility, um, which is really rare to have like a pediatric, a dedicated pediatric hospice facility. Um, And so I think in some ways, when I started working here, I expected it to be, I expected palliative care to be as integrated here as it was in Australia. Um, and, and like so many other things that wasn't necessarily the case. I think that Australia is a little farther ahead in kind of, um, integrating, a more holistic yes. approach, maybe? Yeah, actually, yes. Like a more holistic approach and really all types of care that they provide. Um, and just like integrating palliative care practices within kind of general medicine, I think. Um, yeah. And I think we're working on it here. Do you think that's a different way of seeing the concept of wellness differently? Like how they think about wellness, maybe? Yeah, yeah. That definitely... Um, could play into it. I think also, um, you know, not to get super political, but they also have um, socialized medicine there. So yeah. um, I think a lot of the things that we see as barriers, uh, maybe? yes, yeah, are, are gone. And a lot of the things that we see as sort of like bonus um, medical care, like palliative care is like on a, on a federal level integrated into their systems. So like they're... It's not a nice to have. Right. It's just part of what you get when you have insurance through the state. So you talked a little bit before about the definition of palliative care as helping to sort of attend to sort of the, the physical, the emotional, mm-hmm. the psychoso- psychosocial pain. How do you think about pain in all of those forms, how has how has your concept of pain changed as you've spent day in and day out accompanying mm-hmm. people in pain? I, I guess it's been a couple of different ways. When I think of physical pain, I mean, before I started working in a hospital, I think I had the belief that a lot of people do, which is that there is a fix for everything. Doctors have a fix for everything, even if it's like an incurable disease there will be a way to manage symptoms and there will be a way to make this better. And I have seen now that in some cases that's just not true and that 
is a really kind of hard place to be and to sit with families in, um, in knowing that we can do sort of everything we can do. And sometimes that's not enough to, to fix someone's pain and suffering. Um, and so that I think was a little bit of a rude awakening, um, you know, in my first couple of months or a year of, of working at the hospital. Um, we're helpers as social workers. So we think like if we're not yeah. And in some ways, like, I get to, like, be absolved of some of that. Like, well, it's not my, I don't know anything about pain <laughs> yeah. management. But I trust so deeply the physicians that I work with that I'm like, dude, can you please, like, did you not see this kid? Can you please help them? And sometimes you can't. Um, and so that was, a, that was a hard lesson to learn. How has that changed your, like, relationship with pain, do you think? Uh, I, it's like, a. um, it sounds a little weird to say, but I think I just have this, um, different level of appreciation for the things that the body is capable of and like distancing from the pain, but just an acknowledgement of like, gosh, my little body is trying so hard or is in, like, like, um, I don't know, like a distancing from my physical body. Like it doesn't, when I am in pain or when I am ill, I think the frustration that I used to have of like, yeah. get it together, Rachel, like <laughs> that piece has gone a little bit. <clears throat> is it almost sort of a curiosity or a grace about what pain is there? And to, a gentleness. A gentleness. Yeah. A gentleness with my body of like, I'm sorry, this is happening to us, yeah. to us together. And pain, and I don't want to diminish this. I have um, several friends right now who are going through some pretty excruciating chronic illnesses that are yeah. are really physically manifesting. So. Not to diminish just the pure excruciatingness of physical pain. And I wonder, you know, when you talked about finding gentleness Mm -hmm. for yourself and for your body when Mm -hmm. you're in pain, I wonder, too, how our pain, our physical pain is compounded Mm -hmm. by the ways in which we talk to ourselves about our pain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And just the ways other people talk to us about our pain. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Have you seen that happen yeah. in practice in your work? Yeah. What does that look like? Well, I think it can be hard. You know, a lot of the kids that we work with, they are in chronic pain and will be in chronic pain. And there are things that we can do to decrease that pain from kind of an excruciating level to a functional place. We talk to families and to kids a lot about the fact that our goal is not necessarily to take their pain away, but is to yeah. make it in a manageable place. And that can be really hard for people people to accept or to understand. Especially for parents who Especially just want to do anything they can to yeah. remove the pain. Yes. Watching your child be in pain is almost worse than being in pain yourself. Um, yeah. And so and so, I, I do think the way that the medical system manages people with chronic pain, manage, manages children with chronic pain, can inadvertently compound that pain and make it harder for the kids by either not hearing them or believing them because their children, by undertreating their pain, um, by overtreating their pain. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it is a really, that is a really challenging part of our work. As Rachel reminded me, she has the privilege to work on an interdisciplinary team with a chaplain, nurses, and doctors. I was curious to learn how the team navigated working together, given their different training and sometimes, frankly, approach to the work. 
I think the biggest differences that I see are in kind of um, the psychosocial, spiritual, existential pain, um, because I think medical professionals are trained in fixing things and in solving problems and solving illnesses and and existential or spiritual or psychosocial pain is not a pain like that. It's not a pain you can fix. Yeah. Which, by the way, they've, they're learning that neither is physical pain yeah, sometimes, right. too. But right. for certain, existential and psychosocial pain is... A, it's yeah. And so I think the, it can be a challenge um, kind of within the hospital, within the walls of the hospital, and within kind of this very medicalized system to honor the psychosocial and spiritual pain that someone is going through. Um, I think the chaplain on our team and I are, are very much aligned in like the treatment for this kind of pain is someone to hold space for it and to bear witness to it. Um, and, and sometimes that doesn't look like you're doing a lot, which I think is hard for inside of a hospital. We are very used to doing. Not just inside of a hospital. I mean, really, in our yeah, cult- I, mean really I do think our hospital and our medical system is a magnification of that. But mm-hmm. our culture is like, if you're not doing mm-hmm. and you're not actively fixing, then what the heck? Yeah, right. And I think, to work and I think the yeah. me- medical community is like a distillation of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, you know, I think um, kind of our psychosocial team has certainly um, found some barriers within the hospital of, of um, just allowing people to be really sad um, or really angry within their pain and not needing to call in specialists and to call in people to, to pathologize it to pathologize it exactly yeah yeah that, there is nothing inherently pathological about grief no or pain or, or our pain. response to pain yeah what is actually pathological is our cultural inability <laughs> yes. to actually hold space for it and yeah. bear witness to it i think yeah. that's that's the word have you seen in some ways any influence that maybe you and the chaplain have had on either nurses or doctors in their own evolution about how they think about or how they are increasing maybe their comfort about holding space and bearing witness? Have you seen a transformation? Well, we sure try. Um, Yeah, I think that's a a really big role that we have is providing education, especially to bedside nurses, um, you know, when they have a family who is tearful at the bedside. And maybe there isn't really anything going on. Like there's no There's no necessary triggering event. Yeah, there's no big change. And we get these panicked calls from nurses like, mom's in there crying, like, can you please fix Make it? it. Stop. Yes, exactly. And so, a big part of our role is just to provide the context for which someone may be experiencing psychosocial, spiritual, existential pain or grief, and that this normalizing is, it. Yeah, and this is a super appropriate way to be dealing with that. And how wonderful that this mom feels comfortable enough to be tearful in in this hyper medicalized space. Like, what a good job as a bedside nurse you've done to make this feel yeah. like a comfortable place for her to be. So um, your role really is sort of reframing the yes. narrative because yeah. her solution or her reaction, mm-hmm. I mean, which was sort of like physiologically <laughs> triggered for mm-hmm. herself, mm-hmm. Um, came out of sort of a story that she has taken on in her head that like psychosocial existential pain is bad. Right. It must be fixed. Right. There must be a solution. Right. Exactly. <laughs> We're going to get Rachel in here yes, and she's going to do something about it. Call the social worker. Yeah. So that's interesting. So you... 
are you finding that education is not just happening for the nurses, but also for the families? Are you all helping families reframe, like, don't beat yourself up sure. for crying out of nowhere? Because, of course, you are. Sure. And I think it's especially challenging with the population um, that we work with because in a lot of circumstances, the kids that we work with were not expected to survive very long. So maybe there was um, a difficult birth or... Um, a, a, a severe diagnosis. Yes, a prolonged NICU course where there was a lot of uncertainty about whether or not a child would even survive. And I think in a lot of ways, when a child does survive, then families, I don't know, from themselves, from the medical, somewhere have the message of, you are so lucky your child is here. You're not allowed to be sad about anything else that happens now. Mm. Like, aren't you, the, what you wished for came true. Like you wished and wished and wished that this child would be here and now they are. So be happy. Suck it up. Exactly. And I think it. Wow. Yeah. It's such a disservice. Like there are so many points of grief within the life of a medically fragile child. Every hospitalization, every milestone they're missing, every time you see another kid that same age doing something that you know your kid may never do. Like there is grief in that. And Mm. I think it is super unfair to not allow families to feel that. And so, and I think families do it to themselves. Yeah. Um, well, know, because we also are a victim of our greater culture. Yeah. And so yeah. they have this internal dialogue of like, this is what you wanted. Like, this is yeah. what you asked for. This is this is what you wanted was for your child to be able to be alive. Um, so don't have any negative, quote unquote, negative emotions. Right. Right. And so I do think it's a, a lot of our work with families is educating them on like, this part is grief. Like, it, yeah. your child is alive and this is grief. Um, and just like you would would hopefully not yeah. beat yourself up around feeling grief over a death loss, like this is just a different kind of loss, and this is a, you're allowed to do this. This is normal. Like this is what this part is like. Yeah. I just so appreciate the way in which um, you, and it sounds like the chaplain and, and the other social workers in that team, are normalizing mm-hmm. and aerating kind of the real qualities. I, call, I don't know, real, but the more lived experience qualities of grief because yeah. I think we all show up with some really damaging assumptions about what grief should look like. Mm-hmm. Um, is there one emotion on the spectrum of grief that you notice either the families themselves or the medical community struggle with the most? And what I mean by that is I think we often think of grief as the sad part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you alluded to earlier, like, nurse calling you to say, come here, mom is angry, which is also like another emotion in the rainbow of grief. And that's the one. As soon as you're asking that question, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, anger. Yeah. 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 And I think I'm kind of like what you were saying before as the hospital is this microcosm of society. I think it's also this like fishbowl experience where like your every move is being observed mm. by all these kind of medical professionals and with their medical professional hats on and and their lenses on because they're seeing the world through their training. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so I think when a family is angry or a um, new treatment is suggested or an intervention is suggested and the family reacts with anger. I think families... Or suspicion. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah, or just even que- like regular questions. <laughs> <laughs> I think families are labeled non-compliant or, um, you know, blocking care. And I think it that is really damaging to the relationship that the medical community has with this family. And I think a lot of that 
that anger that um, the medical team can see is grief, is is yeah. that manifestation of that loss. Um, and that is re- that is much harder for them to process than like right. the mom crying on the couch. They're like, oh yeah, she's sad, she's grieving. Yeah. But when someone is raising their voice or asking visibly a lo- yes, upset. asking a lot of really assertive questions, no no one sees that as grief. That's a difficult family. Oh. That's not a grieving family. It's much harder for people to have that compassion when the reaction looks like anger. Yeah. Which again I think you Boy, you hit that so on the head. I think it's such an important and under-talked about part or spectrum of grief. And that resonates in a hospital system, but that resonates in, like, our broader yeah. life. Like, oh, we yeah. don't – we we see people's anger as a personal attack on mm-hmm. us, and we have a story about how it is invalidating us mm-hmm. as opposed to being able to hold that space between the two of us and, yeah. and look back. Last time we spoke, you used the phrase out of order death when mm. you were talking about the kind of particular kind of grief that you're experiencing. And obviously we, we know that we hope to live long mm-hmm. and our parents will age and mm-hmm. someday we will say goodbye. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've learned about the particular journey and the particular processing of grief in what in what you're calling an out-of-order death, which is the loss of a child, even if it's an adult child, by the way. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I think it's challenging. Um, I I think for so many reasons, because it doesn't make sense. It just kind of biologically doesn't make sense. And so I think there's challenges in that. I think your support system is so much less likely to be able to hold that grief because in a way it's scarier than all the other types of grief. Um, I think as a parent, like, of course you worry about your kids dying. You worry about every single thing in the world happening. You never Um, sleep again once you become a parent. For those of you who aren't parents, don't do it. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, But I, I think when you know someone then who kind of your worst nightmare has happened to them, Mm. It's it's hard to show up for that, and and the bereaved families can feel that they can feel how hard it is to show up when you're someone's worst nightmare. Yeah. So I think some of the kind of social supports that families may have if a father dies or a grandfather dies, right. or just look really differently. I think our our society is working really hard to talk more openly about death loss. I think the death of a child is still the hardest thing to talk about. Um, and so I think as many kind of beautiful resources like the one that you're providing that, yeah. that are kind of emerging as our society starts to wonder, like, could this be better yeah. if we just talked about it? Right. I, th- I think the... How can we become more practiced in yeah. this bearing witness and yes. holding space? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we have a ways to go still when it comes to child loss. Yeah, you know, you said something interesting, which I think is true of kind of of all of our reactions to grief and loss, but in particular, I imagine um, the loss of a child, whether it's, you know, prolonged or mm-hmm. at stillbirth or mm-hmm. whatever point along the way, is it is our worst nightmare. Yeah. And we don't know how to not see ourselves oh, in yeah. their pain. Yeah. 
Um, well, that's like how you, that's how we do connection, like as, right. as human beings, like right. is by seeing each other, F- finding the belonging, yeah. finding the connection between yeah. us. And so, um, great point. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is how we, we see and show up in the world. And so what we don't have practice at then is how do we, that fear is going to get triggered. Yeah. That's pretty normal. Yeah. How do we acknowledge that fear? Mm-hmm. Not with them, by the way. They don't sure. need the burden <laughs> of you saying the stupid thing, which is like, I don't know how you're doing right. this and I couldn't or do this. Or this is my worst nightmare. Or this like, is my worst nightmare. People. <laughs> oh, the list of things that people say, if I could only. Um, so, so that's the sort of invitation mm-hmm. to all of us is don't beat yourself up for having the instinctual yeah reaction that yeah. this is my worst nightmare, this is my fear, this thing that you're going through. Yeah. And mm-hmm. how do we practice watching mm-hmm. ourselves have that experience, mm-hmm. have that reaction, set it aside, mm-hmm. and then still show up for that person in our life yeah, absolutely. and say, or by the way, don't say anything because right. sometimes <laughs> it's better to not say anything, but to, mm-hmm. to show up and I see you, mm-hmm. I'm holding you, mm-hmm. I'm going to accompany you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also think you and I talked about, I love your, love to know a little bit about how you think about part of the challenge of this out of order death as what happens when a child dies is our lives are built by the stories we tell mm. of our experiences and also by what we understand to be the trajectory or the quote unquote normal life path mm-hmm. and a and any loss, and in particular a child loss, is a disruption of yeah. our story. Yeah. How do you think about your role as a social worker in accompanying people as their story is coming unraveled? And then maybe what is your role in helping them, inviting them to sort of rebuild or rewrite a yeah. story? Yeah, I think that kind of finding meaning out of what is happening is so important and and you know we know from research that that helps people um kind of have a healthy bereavement if they're able to create um a, a meaningful story out of what has happened to them you know i think it the the types of families that we work with when their children are sick for so long often for their entire lives you know years and years and decades sometimes um I think it can that that story is rewritten so often all the time that it can yeah it can get really tricky and I think families get really good at rewriting it um interesting how to take kind of their expectations for what that story was going to look like and how to reframe those and adjust those based on the child they have and not necessarily the child they were expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, are they able to do that better when they are assisted in allowing themselves to do that in ambiguous laws or process that sort of grief that is different, the different kind of grief? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it's really hard to do if you don't have an awareness of the things that you are grieving. Like if, if you Because you said they're letting go of expectations yeah. and in a way that was like, I need to grieve oh, this totally. expectation I had about the kind of life my kid was going to live. Totally. Lead. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that that, 
grief happens whether or not you acknowledge it. Right. But gosh, it's easier if you just can call it something. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, it's so much easier to be gentle with yourself if you say, this is grief, I am grieving, than yeah. just like... What's wrong with me? What an ungrateful parent I am. And like, I'm a little bit crazy now. Instead of like yeah. having some... Some gentleness with yourself about the grief. Yeah. But yeah, I think that is a big part of what um, the chaplain and I on our team, what like our whole job is really to help families find the meaning in their story and to help them um, kind of define what they want the story to look like. And we do a lot of that um, just through conversation, but also through helping families explore what their child would like what their goals are and their hopes are for mm-hmm. their child, and then really ensuring that the medical care that they're, they're receiving aligns with Matches those goals. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, I think that can be really hard. Because I imagine that happens. That doesn't happen a lot. I mean, there's a risk of that totally. misalignment happening. Yeah, and I think it's hard. Those those conversations take a lot of practice and they take a lot of time. And I think it's hard for you know, the physician or, or the nurse practitioner who's on maybe a day or two and barely has a relationship with a family to say, like, what are you most worried about? What keeps you up at night? Right. What are you hoping? Like, those She's are... like, you need to make a decision about yes. do they want a port or yes, like, exactly. yeah, what do like, we need? We got to move here. Um, and so I think it really is our, our, our role to be able to have those um, quieter, longer conversations with families about Be like, more what ex- are you, exploratory. Yeah. What, what are you hoping for at the end of all this? Yeah. As I mentioned, not only does Rachel spend her days supporting families who are anticipating the loss of their child, she also volunteers at the Austin Center for Grief and Loss as a facilitator for parents who have already lost a child. I asked Rachel to share what she's learned in that role. What resources has she seen families access that have been helpful in navigating their grief? And perhaps what has caused harm or interfered with a healthier start to their grieving journey? I, I think the biggest thing is really having a strong social support system outside of professionals, outside of yeah. the hospital. I think a lot of times, like when... You know, hospital people have known a family for so long. They obviously feel so attached and the family feels so attached. But when a child dies, that those relationships stop. And yeah. I think we do a disservice to families if we allow ourselves to become the most important kind of social supports that they have. Interesting. Um, and so I feel like a huge part of my job is helping families to assess, like, where are your your support people? Where are where the people? Where are your peeps? Yeah. And how, how in this process where it feels like you have n- no time to go to the bathroom, how do you find time to maintain that relationship so that when everything falls apart, you have somebody out there to catch you? Not yeah. just me, but somebody yeah. out yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when people show up at the Center for Grief and Loss and begin the journey of being part of groups or doing workshops or all the other services they provide, are you finding it's the people who've already tapped into those social support networks that are better equipped to move yeah, through? Yeah, yeah, in a way. And I think um, in, in some ways people who have been able to practice these coping skills, um, whether that's through previous loss or just hardship, but like if someone 
if I can say, like, what do you do when something hard is happening and someone already has an answer to that? They're already tapped into that. Yeah, like they already have their internal resources to pull on. And I think everyone has internal resources to pull on. It's just whether or not you know about them. Right. And so that, I think, is another you know, thing that we try to do to help prepare families and in this kind of ambiguous lost place of like, what internal resources are you tapping into? Because we're kind of in, you know, families, uh, any of us who have been sort of near, near the loss of a loved one, we're in, you know, stress response, we're in Mm -hmm. fight or flight mode. And so it's, it's such a gift, I think, for someone in your life. In this case, it's you, you and your role as a social worker, or even for the volunteers who work mm-hmm. with families afterwards to interrupt the sort of fight or flight cycle mm-hmm. and invite people to tap into the resources that they already have, but they're not connecting with right. because they're in that kind of like. Right. And that's a really hard moment to say like, oh gosh, can you think <laughs> about like what, what other yeah. uh, kind of resources you have to be able because to Because people are this? literal too. They're like, I've never been in this situation yeah. before. And so the the long conversation and invitation, I think, really is to help them see in what other ways right. were they able to reach right. into some resources. Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Rachel took on this work long before becoming a parent. Now she is a proud mother to three children, and I asked her how her years of holding space and bearing witness and accompanying families through the loss of their children has shaped her own approach to motherhood and gratitude and, well, life. I think it has given me this wonderful gift of perspective. Um, You know, I think it's like a whole thing now to practice gratitude and to be grateful. And I think that's wonderful. I think it's this whole other level of gratitude when like your kids are up all night or being crazy and you are so frustrated. And like, I have these moments where I can like call to mind mothers and families who would do anything to like have a night where they're up all night with their baby who would like trade that for anything in the world and so I think when I'm kind of in these places of feeling really really frustrated with my children or like what was I doing (laughs) I should never have had all these children Um, (laughs) I think that perspective is really valuable of and and centers me back in like why anyone becomes a parent in the first place is just like to love someone so well um, and I, I, I don't know how I would have that awareness if not for having worked with all these families and, yeah. and knowing them all. Yeah. It's really kind of incredible. Yeah. You know, I think about that often. I used to, I was a adoption, post-adoption mm-hmm. caseworker. And mm-hmm. so I would go in with families, um, after they adopted a kid from state foster care mm-hmm. and talk with them about, you know, the normative responses um, around attachment and the, mm-hmm. the hard behavior they were seeing was actually a sign that they felt safe in your home, right. et cetera. And then I became an adoptive parent. And uh-huh. I was like, okay, universe, <laughs> gotcha. Yes, like, yes. let me live into yeah. and really experience the lessons. Yeah. Um, well, and that's like the much less emotional answer to that question is like, I used to say really stupid things to parents before I became a parent. I like can remember really vividly 
vividly. <laughs> Mom was very anxious about um, her baby needed to have a nasogastric tube placed, like a little wow. tube that goes through the nose to help with feeding and meds. Yeah. And she was very worried about that. And I just, the amount of like really stupid things I said to her to try to make her feel better when really I should have just said like, yeah, this is the worst. Like that yeah. is, that's horrible. I can understand This why is you're horrible. Yeah. Like you, it's going to be really bad. Like, I don't know. I was trying so hard to be like supportive and I, it just, it's so not true. It's just not real. Like anytime something is happening to your kid, it's the worst. It's the worst. And And to just acknowledge that. And to say anything else, to say anything else is just lies. It's just not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you just touched on something there that I think is really important. And I'd be curious for you to explore that. Um, for the benefit of our listeners who might be showing up for friends mm-hmm. who's recently or a long time ago faced the mm-hmm. loss of a child. And that is, I think we conflate and confuse the idea of being supportive mm-hmm. with the idea of tempering mm-hmm. or making okay, or mm-hmm. back to that word, fixing mm-hmm. um, the discomfort or the worry or the or mm-hmm. the pain. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've experienced and witnessed as actually more helpful and supportive and what are the what are the dangers of yeah. the ways in which we conflate supportive? Yeah, I think so much about like people trying to say the right thing or worrying about saying the wrong thing and I think in so many situations there's really nothing to be said like unless you can say like oh surprise your kid isn't dead anymore or like oh surprise your kid isn't terminally ill anymore like nothing you can say is going to fix any of this and so I wonder if we should worry less about that and more just about asking our friends and our families what they need and what being supportive would look like for them. I think for so many families, it's just talking about their child, saying the name of their child, sharing memories that you have, um, you know, sending a random text message to say, oh, I was just thinking about so-and-so. and and, The way he um, used to laugh or, yeah. Because I think for anyone who's grieving, I think one of the biggest fears is that your person will be forgotten. And so I think whatever you can do to help your your friend or your family member know that that isn't happening, I and think that it's a good place to start. I'm sorry. No, yeah, that's a good place to start. I think that's a good place to start. And I think um, to your point about all the ways in which we get wrapped up in our heads about mm-hmm. worrying about saying the right thing mm-hmm. or the wrong thing, we often then don't say anything. Mm-hmm. And in particular, the suggestion that you had, I think, is so beautiful about, you know, the random text or Mm -hmm. the conversation, sharing a memory, is such a way to support someone who's grieving because I think it's so often the burden of the primary person in that, in their life Mm -hmm. that we are the only ones now carrying forward Mm -hmm. their memory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And even the, and so for someone else to... Mm -hmm actually out of the blue mm-hmm. say, hey, I was just thinking about the way he used to smile mm-hmm. when such mm-hmm. and such happened. And yeah. I just thought you should know. And I had a mom tell me not too long ago that um, she had a friend who she kind of got into this big conversation with about her daughter who had died. And her friend said, I've been meaning to ask you about how you're doing and, and about your daughter, but you seem to be doing so well. I didn't want to remind you 
of all of this. And the mom was like, that was so thoughtful and also... So I'm, stupid. Yeah, so stupid. Like, I'm never not thinking about her. I, I have never forgotten that this is happening. And so, like, in no way is you bringing up my child's name or sharing a story. Like, you're not... It's not like I've forgotten. I'm, yeah. I'm never not thinking about her. Yeah. So you not talking about her with me makes yeah. just makes me think you've forgotten. Right. And just makes me by myself in that. Yeah. Grief can be so isolating. People often stay away because they think, because they haven't been through the exact experience, they don't know how to be, what to say, how to be helpful. Rachel and I explore the reasons why that just can't be an excuse anymore and what you might expect when you arrive at their door. Anything you can do in showing up in support to allow the person to not feel isolated um, is really the best gift you can give. And as you said, that doesn't mean talking or asking them to process feelings. It might literally mean showing up yeah. and sitting down next to them and staring off into the distance yeah. for an hour. Yeah. Like yeah. that might be the thing. Cause we all like, even if you've never experienced a death loss, like there's been breakups or you've lost a job, like there have been bad things that have happened yeah. to everyone. And we know that it feels better to be sad next to somebody than to be sad all alone. So even if there's nothing being said and you can't, get your job back or, you know, like you're not fixing anything, but just to not be by yourself in it, that's better. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have kind of, um, thoughts or wisdom about what it looks like for us to uh, accompany someone? I think that's kind of a little bit what we're talking about is to accompany someone. And what are you seeing that's working right? Yeah. I think just making lots of space and lots of space for all the different kind of feelings that people experience. Like I think our conversation about anger is so important because I think um, it is hard for grieving people and I would say especially grieving women to experience kind of outward signs of anger. And I, I think so. I think holding space for things other than sadness like relief like sometimes there is relief that comes with a death that as a parent is really hard to talk about that you may have been a primary caregiver for a very incredibly medical fragile and incredibly um kind of a, a time intensive caregiving for 10 or 15 years before the death of a child and there is a natural relief that comes with not having that responsibility which obviously people would take that responsibility back a hundred times if it meant they could still have their child. Mm -hmm. And, and, and and there is a relief in that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, just, and I think it's hard because you can't just walk up to someone and say like, Oh, tell me about all the hard feelings that you're having. But I think like (laughs) kind of modeling what it looks like to be really vulnerable and share really openly and vulnerably about feelings you're having and, when someone kind of works up the courage to talk to you about that, to kind of meet that with no judgment and kind of with these open arms and an open heart. Um, And I think my recommendation would be just to keep showing up um, because sometimes people don't 
have anything to say. And they're not going to do it on and your timetable. Right, right. Yeah. 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 And I think that is kind of one of the nice things about doing a lot of work in the hospital is you have sort of this captive audience. While kids are admitted to the hospital, their parents are often just hanging out at the yeah. bedside. So yeah. I can go by every day and sometimes we talk about football and sometimes we talk about funerals. Um and, and it all is important. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything else you feel like after uh, nearly a decade doing <laughs> this work that you um, still are curious about, you want to learn more about? Like, is there is there a new frontier in terms of the work that you want to do or your own learning that you're curious about these days? Yeah, I think a lot about... Um, kind of the way in which a person dies and how that impacts um, a family's bereavement. You know, we, a lot of the kids that we work with have really um, kind of these long drawn out illnesses and lots of hospitalizations where they are very ill and sometimes on life support and get better. And Extraordinary get measures. Oh, yeah, and, yeah CPR yeah. and yeah, but then they get better and they go home and they like, kind of reached their previous baseline or close to their previous baseline for a time and have a wonderful quality of life and then kind of come back in crashing. And, you know, I think that that kind of um, roller coaster of a life can feel really hard for some medical staff to witness. And, you know, sometimes questions come up like, what are we doing here? Yeah. And And so I think a lot about, like, does it impact the way a family processes grief or processes their child's life to have their last days or weeks be in an ICU feeling like they're receiving every intervention possible if if that's kind of where the family's goals are is because I th- because I think there's this idea like at this in in the medical profession that our ideal death is not inside an ICU our ideal death is in a home setting surrounded yeah. by the people who love you. And I, and I guess my question is, is that true? Is that true for every family? Yeah. Like does that, do we know for sure that that facilitates a healthier bereavement to have that kind of end of life mm. experience? Or is it possible that families really do know what would facilitate their own healthiest bereavement and maybe that does look like full resuscitation in an ICU. Yeah. And how will we know that if we don't all get more practiced and comfortable about asking those questions and having those conversations and as opposed to making assumptions about what is the right way or the wrong way? You know, you remind me, I think we were talking earlier about Atul Gawande's book Mm -hmm. around being mortal. And as a medical practitioner for so long, I think he had some of those same questions yeah. and those so that some of those same curiosities uh-huh. you know that you're having about are we making assumptions about what is a good life right. for a family right. and what is a good death yeah. for a family and what are the systems that are enabling or blocking that mm-hmm. and what are the questions that we are or aren't asking yeah that are going to help us figure that out yeah and my like gut says that families, people, people and families yeah. know what they need. Like yeah. I trust families 
to tell me how to take care of them and yeah. to tell to show me what they need from me and from the medical team. But we have to invite them, I think, yeah. right? Yeah. Because we are in a culture that values the medical knowledge mm-hmm. as the end-all, be-all. Mm-hmm. And so we are indoctrinated ourselves into thinking every last measure that is possible mm-hmm. medically is the right thing to do, mm-hmm. is what this family needs. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm i curious about how our practices, and I think social workers and chaplains m- might mm-hmm. just be the answer mm-hmm. to this. Social workers are always the answer to every question. <laughs> Agreed. Slightly biased here <laughs> as a social worker. Um, but it might be how do we invite conversations and openings and questions mm-hmm. to families to help them find their own authority yeah. in that and yeah. say, like, yes, the medical community has some real knowledge and authority and expertise, and they don't know you mm-hmm. and what allows your psychic well-being, mm-hmm. your social-emotional well-being mm-hmm. um, in terms of how you proceed towards this end yeah. of life. And those are the exact sort of conversations that our team has with families all the time. I think it's so nice, too, because the way our kind of team is structured is we are able to develop these really long-term relationships with families. And so we like have such good relationships that I would feel super comfortable asking that exact question just like that to yeah. a family. That's amazing. Um, and, and, I, and I think, you know, having a team that values that, 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 that as opposed to that fight against it. Yeah. 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 And like is willing to kind of put in the time to be able to have those really challenging and very direct conversations about like, how do we do this for you? Um, I, th- I think it would be, it's so hard for me to imagine how you would do that without kind of this, this base uh, relationship. Yeah. How do we get those conversations beyond the palliative care unit? Yeah. How, how do we change the language of our culture around these kind of conversations? No pressure, yeah. but. <laughs> <laughs> I'll fix it. Um, yeah, that's, no, that's a, that's a really good question. I think there, in order to make this, space for those conversations. You have to make space. And I think the way that our medical system is set up um, and and the way that our physicians are expected to behave in outpatient appointments in the hospital, like they are not given like just like the physical time and space. It's not reinforced. Yeah. It's, you have 15 minutes. Like how can you do that in 15 minutes? You can't. And so I think it's a, it's a fundamental, like at, at its, base a structural change yeah. in the way healthcare is delivered. Um, also, maybe the education that doctors and nurses receive yeah. around the importance of what this might. Absolutely. And I think like kind of um, building in uh, interdisciplinary teams across all More commonly. Medicine. Yes. So that, you know, the physician may not have time to start these conversations, but a social worker might. Yeah. And so to be able to invite families and kind of build that rapport and build that trust and then pull in the physician when there needs to be kind of medical decision making, you can right. still have a member of the interdisciplinary team with that relationship to be able to kind of move that conversation forward. Yeah. So I think that's a more cost effective. Yeah because they don't pay social workers. But that's a more <laughs> cost-effective way rather than carving out an hour-long appointment with for every physician. physician. Yeah. No, um, yeah. But yeah, I think it will have to be a kind of a fundamental structural, structural change. And I wonder, too, what 
those of us as individuals who are curious about this can actually just start modeling and practicing yeah. in our lives, yeah, in our families, with our friends. I think that's, I think it's an and uh-huh. solution. Yeah. You know, yes, there's some structural changes that can happen. And if each of us become more practiced and comfortable in our home lives, in our relationships with others, those folks, us folks, mm-hmm. may show up to appointments actually demanding those kinds yeah. of conversations yeah. in the systems that may or may not be able to hold it. Right, right. And I think that's how you do anything is like to just start with the people that you have access to all the time and model that authenticity and the vulnerability and um, kind of just your willingness to talk about the really hard things. And yeah. then if you do that enough, your family's like, okay, I guess this I guess is what we do now. And then <laughs> your friends are like, oh God, here she goes again. But they, but it's like anticipated. And then before long, they like, develop then language. they do that too. And yeah. like, yeah, and it's just this like beautiful ripple effect. And then it's a whole army of people who can talk about hard, hard things, things. And that makes me feel excited. Oh my gosh. That makes me feel so <laughs> excited too. Rachel, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today yeah. talking about the hard things. And I think, I hope enabling us all to feel a little more practiced and prepared to show up for ourselves and the ones we love Uh, when the hard things happen. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Well, I don't know about you, but I learned so much from my conversation with Rachel on this episode. If you found value in today's conversation, please share this podcast with someone you know. Also, remember to leave us a rating and review. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of Grief is a Sneaky bitch.